Let me say to you, happy Father's Day weekend. My name is Will Taburin. I'm one of the pastors here. And to all you dads out there who are faithfully seeking to teach your children to love Jesus Christ, uh, to set their hope in God, to engage in his mission, we want to applaud you. We want to say how thankful we are for you. And uh, your labor, your labor is not, is not in vain. And so as we share with you often, we believe that the home is the first mission field. And so it excites us greatly uh, to hear stories about kids coming to know Christ through their parents leading them to seek and savor Jesus above all else. With that said, I do want to make sure that my kids know that if they think even for a second, we're going to start handling snakes and tarantulas in our house. They got another thing coming. Man, that is like my worst nightmare. Marshall asked in the video, I said, why does God create these things? I do not know with snakes and tarantulas, man. That is horrible. Uh, so... Before we jump into our text this weekend, let me remind you that we are in a four-part series entitled Altered, where we are looking at different encounters that, that men and women have face-to-face with Jesus and how their lives are forever changed as a result, how they're forever altered as a result of their encounter. And I want to say to you, listen, if you did not have a chance to hear Pastor Derek's message last week on doubt and John 20 and the encounter Jesus has with Doubting Thomas, I really want to encourage encourage you to go online, to watch that, to listen to it. It was immensely helpful, incredible, a great encouragement uh, to me and I know to those who heard it. And so if you haven't had a chance to do that, I want to encourage you to do so. I do think, however, there needs to be one point of clarification, if not uh, a strong rebuke, uh, just kind of elder to elder. Um, I did not find uh, Derek's disparaging comments about NC State fans and their deep commitment to their athletic teams very helpful at all. And so I want to say to all you Pack fans out there, listen, you stay strong. God says to us, listen, for those who persevere, who overcome, we will inherit the kingdom, right? Anybody can jump on a Tar Heel or Blue Devil bandwagon. That is easy to do. It's hard to stay strong. So I want to encourage you, remember our motto, there is always next year, all right? So turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, and as we are going to see Jesus encounter a blind beggar. While last week we considered the doubter, Today, we're going to consider what it looks like for a desperate person to come face to face with Jesus. And I realize, I realize that for many of you, if you're really honest, if you're really honest before the Lord this morning, you find yourself in a desperate place. You're desperate for God to bring some form of physical healing to you. You're desperate for God to put together relationships in your life that have been broken marriages that have been broken, families that have been separated. You're desperate for God to ease your pain and your heartache. You're desperate for God to provide that need. You're desperate for God to answer that question. You're desperate for God just to show up. Well, I want to encourage you because I believe that John 9 speaks to your desperation physically, emotionally, and spiritually and provides a perspective that only Jesus and looking to the cross can bring. So let's look together at the text. You see that John 9's a long chapter. It has 41 verses. I'm not going to read all of those to you, but what I do want to do is I want to read the bookends of that. I want to read the first seven verses, and then I want us to read together the last seven verses. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. As he, being Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. We're going to skip down to verse 35, but before I start reading there, can I just give you a brief overview of what happens in between because it's really important. In verses 8 through 12, we see an interaction that that the blind man has with his neighbors. He tells his neighbors kind of what has happened, and they're blown away, but they're not eventually convinced that it's him. And so because of this kind of radical miracle that's taken place, they decide, man, it's really important for us to take him before the religious leaders of the day. And so they bring him to the Pharisees and the religious leaders for the first of two encounters that he has with them. And in that encounter, we find a very important part of this story. For in verse 14, the scripture says that it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so we know that the religious leaders of the day thought very poorly about anyone and considered them a sinner who sinned or who worked on the Sabbath day. And so they questioned the man, and they're basically like, whoever did this was a sinner. And so some of the Pharisees were like, definitely a sinner. Some of the other Pharisees are like, but yeah, the the man was born blind, and now he sees. And so they're a little bit kind of perplexed by that. And so then in verses 18 to 23, we see an interesting encounter that the Pharisees have with the man's parents. So they're like, we got to try to get to the bottom of this because we don't really believe what's going on here. And so they call the man's parents in and they're like, listen, is this your son and was he born blind? And they're like, yes, he is our son and yes, he was born blind. So they begin kind of pressing into into them about what really happened. And in that passage, we find also a very important part of the text in that the Pharisees had the authority and the ability to cast anyone out of the synagogue, which had massive societal implications. It meant that you were cut off in every way. And so the parents, knowing that, were fearful of that. They were fearful of being cast out, and they were fearful of their son being cast out. And so they're like, listen, if you really want to know what happens, you're going to have to talk to him because he is of age. And so that leads to the second encounter that we see between the Pharisees and the blind man man, in verses 24 to 34. And in those verses, you see that things get pretty heated between the religious leaders and the blind man. They question the blind man and they call on him. They say, listen, man, you better repent because a sinner A sinner is one who works on the Sabbath day. And the blind man looks at him and is like, listen, man, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. And so he pushes against that and he pushes and pushes and they push him eventually to the point where they have great disdain for them and they cast him out of the synagogue. They cut him off from society. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 35. Look at what he says. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God to speak to our hearts as we study it together. Lord, we love you. God, we are so grateful for this high privilege that we have as brothers and sisters of Christ to gather here and to study your word together. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak in these moments. Lord, I confess and I believe that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is able to pierce the deepest recesses of our hearts. God, I'm asking you to do that right now. Lord, I'm asking that you would give us spiritual sight. Lord, I pray that in our desperation, we would come to you and cling to you and lean in on you, that you would lift up our eyes and let us see you. Father, would you get me out of the way and would you speak to your people, I pray. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, Summit family, here's what I want to do for the first part of our time together this weekend. I want us to walk very carefully and methodically for the, through the first seven verses of this passage of Scripture because there's so much in there that I think is so important that sets up the rest of what we're going to look in the back half of this chapter. So let's walk through this kind of verse by verse. Notice he says in verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Jesus sees a blind man who's in desperation. We know that he's begging. We know that he's been begging for a long time because Jesus is compassionate. He stops to help this man. That's what compassion is. Compassion sees a need and compassion is willing to do something about that need. And so they see this blind man who's been born from birth, the scripture says that way. Now the scripture does not tell us how Jesus or his disciples know that. It just is silent on that issue. But what we see coming out of that is the disciples asking Jesus a very important theological question. They see this blind man as they're passing by, as they're engaging with him, and they ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You say, well, why did they ask that question? Well, a little context is helpful here. The religious leaders of the day taught that whenever there was a congenital illness like blindness that someone had for birth, or whenever there was any sort of suffering, any sort of suffering period, they always deduced that suffering was the direct result of some person's sin. And so the disciples are asking the question, well, was it this man's sin? Because some of the Pharisees taught that you could even sin in the womb or even before your birth, which is crazy, I know. And others taught that, well, if someone's born by it would be because of their parents' sin. And so they're just asking Jesus an honest theological question. Whose sin is responsible for this man's blindness? And what we see from Jesus is that he is going to reject that entirely. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parent. And we're going to see from Jesus an incredibly important lesson about suffering. Because what we find here in verse 3 is that the cause of his suffering is unclear, but the purpose in his suffering isn't. Jesus is abundantly clear that the purpose was that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, here's the lesson for us. God's purpose in our suffering is more important than understanding the cause of our suffering. 
God's purpose in our suffering is more important than understanding the cause. The cause is sometimes worth discovering and worth understanding because we know that sometimes our sin is the direct result of poor choices or our suffering is the direct result of poor choices that we've made, of sinful behavior. And so, yes, it's good to try to discern what is the cause, but if we stay there and we never get to the purpose of our suffering, that begins to be a rabbit hole through which we can never get out of. We're constantly trying to understand, why did this happen? Whose responsibility is it? What took place here? What took place there? And we never lift up our eyes and begin to see, God, what are you trying to do in the midst of this? What is your purpose in that? But you might say, well, Will, I'm trying to do that, but I just don't understand. I don't understand what God's purpose is. Well, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you with this. For most of us, if I can be brutally honest with you, for most of us, we don't, we don't find out God's purpose in our suffering, at least not completely in this life. For most of us, that is going to be the case. But while we may not know what God's purpose is, we can be assured, church, that he has one that he has one. And just as importantly, we can know that God is with us even in the worst suffering, just as Jesus steps into the suffering of this blind man. The apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God works for those who love God, all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So whether in this life or in the life to come, God will work together things for good. So that means, that means for you and that means for me, perhaps his purpose will be like the blind man to step in and do some miraculous thing so that the works of God might be displayed in you. And I pray that God does those things. I pray that God brings that healing and God pray that God brings that restoration and I pray that God brings that redemption. But perhaps his purpose will be to show his power through your weakness as he sustains you drawing you ever so close to him in the midst of the suffering. One of the clearest examples of that is the apostle Paul, right? Who begs God to take the thorn from his flesh. God, take this thorn from me. And what does God say? No, no, because I'm gonna show you, Paul, that my strength is going to be made perfect in your what? In your weakness, in your weakness. I am gonna sustain you. I am gonna work in you. I am gonna draw you close to me through this suffering. And even in that, my glory, my glorious works are going to be put on display through you. So either way, either way, God's glory, God's power is put on display. And Summit Church, let me remind you that when you seek his purposes and long for his glory in the midst of your suffering, you can know that according to the scripture, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that is good news. This means, this means that if our suffering is to have ultimate meaning in our lives, if our suffering is gonna have ultimate meaning in our lives, then God must be greater to us, more valuable to us, more beautiful to us than whatever it is our suffering threatens to take from us. You hear that? For our suffering to have ultimate meaning, 
It means that God has to be more beautiful to us, more glorious to us, more valuable to us than whatever it is our suffering threatens to take from us. So that means he has to be better than my marriage. He has to be better than my health. He has to be better than my kids. He has to be better than my job. He has to be better than my money. He has to be better in all those things. And when he is, I'm able to persevere and endure and God is assured to get glory through that. That's why, that's why we can read the New Testament and we can read the Old Testament and see people's stories who went through incredible hardship and difficulty for the glory of God because Jesus was worth it. That's why we read about Paul who, who man endured all sorts of trial and tribulation from shipwrecks to beatings to floggings to, to all these things. How could he endure that? Because for Paul to live is Christ and to die is what church? Gain. It's better. He's more valuable. He's more awesome. He's more supreme. He's more glorious than anything this world could ever offer him. So the purpose of his blindness and the purpose even of our suffering is so the works of God might be displayed in him and in us. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here Jesus is simply acknowledging that his earthly ministry is getting ready to come to an end. That the day is here where he is working and he is proving himself to be the son of God, but night is coming when he will be betrayed and he will be crucified. And we're gonna come back to that in just a little bit. Verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Man, I need y'all to do something for me for just a minute. I need you to the very best of your ability to try to put yourself in that moment. Put yourself in the crowd and watch this happen. Every time I read this, I'm blown away at the power of the miracle, but I have to be honest with you, I'm a little grossed out too, right? I mean, here Jesus is, he's with his disciples, and he sees the blind man, and to heal him, he just, man, he just spits. That's just gross. You know, another person's saliva on your face is just kind of gross. I think about, I have a little bit of flashback to when my parents used to like, when you get something crusty on your face as a little kid, you know, they take their finger and lick it and like do that. That's disgusting. Dads, we should stop doing that. Like we should like stop from this point forward and say that's sin and wrong, right? So kids, I'm sorry I've done that to you. So he spits on the ground and he needs the mud and he makes a mud pie and he puts it on the man's eyes. And the blind man in such desperation says, have at it. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did Jesus make the mud? Why did he spit on the ground and make mud to put on the man's eyes? We read all throughout the scripture, all throughout Jesus's life, that he didn't do this normally. Normally when he healed or raised people from the dead, he spoke or he touched them, right? He said to Lazarus, hey, get up out of the grave. All he had to do was speak a word and a dead man rise. With the leprous person, I mean, we see that beautiful picture of God, Jesus, taking the hands of a leprous person to the outcast and healing them. Why here did he have to make mud to put on the man's eyes? There is a really important reason why. 
You remember of what it says in verse 14? Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. Listen, the religious leaders of that day had added to the law and said it was wrong to do any sort of kneading, kneading of bread, kneading of mud, kneading of anything on the Sabbath day. So here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is creating conflict. He's creating conflict with the religious leaders because he wants to show them what's even more important than having physical eyes opened is having spiritual eyes opened. And so he's going to show them just how blind they really are. And in order to show them how blind, he's got to do something on the Sabbath day that would cause them to rebuke him, cause them to show the depth of their sin and the depth of their blindness. So Jesus spits on the ground on the Sabbath. He needs on the Sabbath. He puts the mud on the man's eyes on the Sabbath to create the conflict. And so he puts it on the man's eyes and he says to him, go. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And what did the man do? He went up and he washed and he came out seeing. What an incredible story. The man came out seeing one that had never been done before, a miracle that had never been done before, a miracle that demonstrates both the power and the authority of the Son of Man. But listen, Summit family, this text is about so much more. The rest of this chapter shows us that while Jesus cares deeply about physical desperation and physical suffering of this blind man, And us too. He is even more concerned about confronting an issue that affects all of us from birth, and that is spiritual blindness, which affects how we see everything. It affects, and that includes our difficulty and our hardship and our suffering. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to jump with me all the way down to verse 39. And I want you to underline it, highlight it, put a star by it, because herein, I think, is the main idea, the main thought of this text, and that is this. For judgment... I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now, some of you are reading that, I know, in your mind and you're thinking, well, Will, man, this seems like Jesus is contradicting himself because I know in other places in Scripture, Jesus says he doesn't come to condemn the world, but rather he comes to save the world. And so let me be abundantly clear. God's purpose in sending Jesus, the Messiah, to earth was so that Jesus could live the life we were supposed to live and die the death we were condemned to die, that he would hang on the cross and he would take upon himself all the wrath and judgment and condemnation that you and I deserve. That was his point in coming, that he would reconcile lost sinners to a holy God so that God would establish for himself a new people that he would ultimately establish a new heaven and a new earth of people who would worship him and delight in him. That is God's saving purpose in coming. That's what we read in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But verse 17 goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So which one is it? It seems like Jesus is saying right here, I have come into this world, right? For judgment, I come into this world. Jesus is not contradicting himself, but he is bringing to light a really, really important part that we have got to sit under. For Jesus to come and save some naturally means that there is judgment for others, right? He's naturally going to save some for any person, like the blind man, 
For any of those, like the blind man, who acknowledge their spiritual blindness, God graciously and mercifully gives sight. Do you remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount as he's talking about the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know that they have a need, those who know that they need something other than themselves, that they need a righteousness other than themselves, and they begin hungering and thirsting for righteousness. For those, God says, listen, I will give you spiritual sight. That is a prayer that God always answers in the affirmative. He always answers yes. When we cry out to him and we acknowledge our need, just like the blind man, God brings spiritual sight. But listen, but for those who think they see when they are really blind like the Pharisees, Jesus brings judgment. He brings judgment. Look at what he says in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Notice what Jesus responds, how he responds in verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Remember, he's not talking about physical blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness. And he was saying, listen, if you were spiritually blind and that was leading you to see how desperate you were and looking to me, I would give you sight and therefore you would not be guilty anymore. Because I will always give spiritually, spiritual sight to those who are seeking spiritual sight and long for spiritual sight. That's a yes. But he says, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They were prideful. They didn't follow Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus. They didn't look to Jesus. They didn't see their need for Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is saying, your guilt remains. And because their guilt remains, judgment is coming to the Pharisees. Judgment is coming to the religious leaders. Listen to me when I read this and I think about the whole counsel of God's word. And knowing the fact, listen, I want to say this as humbly and charitably as I can. There is coming a day when every single one of us will stand before the Lord our God. And what, what sits on me and is so heavy is I know, because the scripture says, there are going to be those that God looks at and says, depart from me, for I never knew you. People who think, people who believe that they're following God and honoring God, that God is going to look and say, I never knew knew you, which causes us to beg, it begs the question, do I have spiritual sight that's leading to salvation and redemption of my soul? And this is so hard. It's so challenging because it, we can be so easily deceived and convinced that we see things clearly just like the Pharisees. Paul David Tripp said it this way, spiritual blindness isn't like physical blindness. When you're physically blind, you know that you're blind. So you compensate for this significant physical deficit. But spiritually blind people are not only blind, they're also blind to their blindness. You get what he's saying? He's saying like the Pharisees, they're blind, but they don't think they're blind. So they're blind to their blindness. They think that they actually see when in reality they don't. They think they see well. So the spiritually blind person walks around with the delusion that no one has a more accurate view of themselves than God does or than, than they do, which is where the Pharisees are, which is what they're doing. So... It begs the question, how can I know if I have spiritual sight? 
Well, from this text, I believe that we see pretty clearly what happens when a spiritually desperate person encounters Jesus. We see pretty clearly what happens when they begin to get spiritual sight. We see some characteristics that come that give us confidence that God is at work in giving us spiritual eyes to see. So let me share those three with you. The first is this. Spiritual sight leads to radical obedience. Spiritual sight, when I begin to see, it leads to radical obedience in my life. Notice in verse 7 that he says, when Jesus told him when he did this thing, Jesus called him to go and wash, and the scripture says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. One of the fascinating observations about Jesus' interaction with this blind man is that the blind man doesn't push back at all. When Jesus is spitting in the ground and making the mud and putting on his eyes, there's no picture of him pushing back against that or even questioning that. When Jesus says to get up and go to the pool of Siloam and wash, the man gets up and goes to the pool of Siloam and he washes. Listen, I love how Crawford Loritz puts it. Whenever you choose your way over his way, you commit idolatry, meaning you have spiritual blindness. So in essence, you're saying that your wisdom is superior to God's. You are acting as though you are God. But here's the thing. If you're desperate enough, if you're desperate enough, just like the blind man, you stop trying to do it your way. Why? Because you don't have anything else to lose. And that's how all kinds of desperate people came to Jesus. They didn't care how dumb they looked or what other people thought. They just had to get to them because they had no other hope. And once they got to Jesus, they were willing to do whatever Jesus was calling them to do. So can I tell you guys something? If you're having a hard time going wherever God tells you to go and doing whatever God tells you to do, it's probably not a problem with your discipline. The problem is you aren't desperate. You aren't desperate. Listen, you don't just need better discipline to be obedient. You need to see how desperate you are. Spiritual eyes, spiritual sight begins to produce radical obedience in the life of someone who can see. Number two, spiritual sight leads to boldness. I told you that on two different occasions, the, the blind man interacts with the religious leaders, the most powerful of the day. But it's in that second interaction that we see just how powerfully bold he is, how bold this blind man is. Because the Pharisees come out of the gate pretty hot in this second interaction. And they're like, listen, you need to give glory to God for this man is a sinner. And that harkens back to, to something that Joshua said to Achan. When Achan had sinned, and he is confronting Achan, he's saying, listen, you give glory to God. It's another way of saying, listen, man, you better repent of what you're saying. You better repent of that. He said, give glory to God because we know that this man is a sinner. But the blind man responds, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so they ask him again, and they even get more emboldened. And the blind man gets even more sarcastic. He's like, listen, do you want to become his disciples too? And so he's pushing back on them. And then in verse 28, we see not only the great disdain they had for the man, but they, we see the depth of their own blindness, right? Again, they think they can see. Look at what it says. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. So they're putting the, the contrast there. They're saying, we see and you don't. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he come, comes from. Now I want you to notice, look with me at verse 30. I want you to see the boldness of this man. You can hear that his whole comments are just dripping with sarcasm. He says, why? This is an amazing thing to you. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That is incredible boldness. The blind man knew full well what he was saying. He's saying Jesus is from God, and he knew full well who he was saying it to. He knew that they had the authority to cast him out. And listen, I don't want this to be lost on us. This isn't like he's cast out of the Summit Church and he just goes down to another church down the street. This is like, man, he is cast out from the church. He's cast out from the community. He's cut off from society. This had significant, massive implications for him, socially, financially, in every way. And yet he says, listen, I was blind and now I see this man is from God. Spiritual sight leads to boldness in the life of one who can see Jesus for who he is. Thirdly, spiritual sight leads to total surrender. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And they said, and he said to him, he found him and said to him, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Man, what blows me away about these few short verses, it's not just that Jesus helped him to see physically, but he helps him to see him. You're looking at him. You're looking at the Son of Man. And when the blind man saw him, when he looked into the very eyes of the Son of Man who gave him physical sight, he responds in the only way appropriate. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The word worship in the Greek, it means to prostrate oneself. He fell down before him. And what amazes me is that the religious leaders were standing right there. They saw this going on. They were close enough to hear what Jesus was saying and the blind man knew what it meant and he knew what he was doing and he was saying, listen, I am completely surrendered to you. And that's forever changing the trajectory of my life. That's what spiritual sight begins to do in someone who's seeing Jesus clearly. It leads to total surrender. It means that you no longer look at your life the same. You no longer look at your purpose the same. Man, my purpose now is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. My purpose now is to worship him in everything. It changes the way that I view my marriage. My marriage is now seen as a beautiful picture that exists between Christ and the church. And so how I love my wife and how she loves me is to point people to Christ. It's how, it changes how I view my kids. It changes how I view success. Success isn't found in what the world says success is. Success is found in what the word of God says success is. And here's what I know about the word of God from Joshua 1.9 where the scripture says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night that you might be willing to observe everything that is written in it. For then your way will be prosperous and then you will have good what, church? Success. Success. This defines success. The glory of God defines success. It changes the way I view my money. It's total, absolute surrender to the almighty God. When you begin to have spiritual eyes to see, these are the things that are produced in you. And so it begs the question for us, is that what's being produced in me? And if not, perhaps that means that even as a Christian, I'm dealing with some blindness and I need help to see. 
I need the light to be shown. You see, let me close with this. There are two questions that are coming out of this story, and these questions are each targeted to a specific group of people. I want to say to you that if you're desperate and broken and hurting today, do you know where to find healing? Physically, spiritually, emotionally. I want to say to you to lift up your eyes and look to the one who can give you spiritual sight. The other group, if you claim to see, do you think you see clearly? Do you have the humility today, the humility today to let Jesus challenge you just like he's challenging the Pharisees? Do you have the humility to say, Lord, I don't want to be blind and I don't want to be blind to my blindness. So Lord, would you give me sight and let me see you for who you are? So whether you're desperate whether you're blind spirit, the answer is the same. It's to look. It's to look to the cross. You see, the only way that you'll begin to see things clearly with spiritual eyes is when you look to the cross. You know, Jesus reminds us here in verse 4. I told you we were going to come back to this. He says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. That means while he is doing his earthly ministry. But then he says night is coming. He's saying, I'm the light of the world, but night is coming. Jesus is looking forward to the cross when he would be plunged into spiritual darkness. And as one author said, Jesus is going to now move from the day work of relieving suffering to the night work of suffering himself. And so I want you to think with me for just a moment. What happened when Jesus was on the cross? You remember what begins to happen about at the sixth hour? The scripture says that darkness begins descending onto the earth. And while darkness is falling onto the earth, Jesus is slowly slipping into spiritual darkness that's culminating with him asking his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus goes all the way into spiritual darkness. And because Jesus was plunged into death and darkness for me, that means that my darkest hours aren't wasted or alone. I, yes, you, yes, we may live our entire lives desperate, just like the blind man. But Summit family, let me encourage you with this. The cross assures me that this life is not all that there is. My brokenness and shame and hurt is not the whole story. Jesus takes all of that. And through the resurrection, he offers healing and sight. See, God's purpose in your desperation, whether in this life or in the life to come, is that the works of God might be put on display. So our response today is to humbly, humbly lift up our eyes, look to the cross and say, God, let me see that your works might be put on display through me. Amen. Let's pray together. God, may this be so. For those who are hurting, those who are suffering, spiritually, physically, emotionally desperate, 
God, I pray that they would cling to you today, the one, the one who will work for your glory, work for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. God, for those who think they see, God, give them a humility, a humility to ask you for spiritual sight. God, may it be. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.